This morning we're finishing a six-week series in a short letter that's titled 1 John in the New Testament. And actually, interestingly, the name John isn't even in the letter, that we just know that by tradition. Um, There are uh, stylistic uh, similarities to the the biography of Jesus that we have that's called John. Um, And uh, the first part of the title, 1 John, we don't know if this was the first or twelfth or, or letter. We don't even know if first, second, and third John were written in that order. Uh, and all of that isn't actually all that interesting or important to me. What is interesting and important is the reason behind why this letter was written in the first place. Again, I said we'd been in this series for six weeks. The first week, Devin did a great job of explaining some of the background and the context for the letter. And he told us that John wrote this decades after Jesus had ascended into heaven. By now he was an old man, and by virtue of his wisdom and firsthand experience with Jesus, he was the leader, um, recognized spiritual leader of a network of house churches. And these churches faced a crisis. The crisis was that some of their closest friends had broken away and denied the core beliefs that had once united them as churches. And these folks who uh, broke away claimed to be close to God, but lived lives inconsistent with what they had all been taught. And they'd become increasingly selfish. They didn't live out the value of love that uh, Jesus had taught while on earth. And about Jesus, well, they were squishy on him too. The idea that John and Paul and other New Testament writers taught that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, was something they were rapidly abandoning. Now, this group of dissenters were trying to persuade some of those who had remained in these churches um, to abandon their faith. So John was so concerned that he wrote this letter to try to assure them that the faith, the beliefs they once held in common were still true, and the way of life they'd been taught was still the way to live. Another way to say this is that John wanted to remind them of what faith looked like, that what it meant for faith to be authentic and genuine and real. And you can see why this was so important. Because if you something you, you believe suddenly comes under attack, it might raise doubts. Where you once had answers, you may now have questions. Now, just a quick word about doubt, because some among the church, among church types think that doubt is bad. So I've heard people say to someone who has questions and doubts, would you just stop it and just believe? Now, if you're someone who struggles with doubt, please know that that's the last thing that I want you to hear today. I do um, hope that uh, if you do have doubts, that this can be a place where you can seek answers. And I believe there are answers to many of the faith questions that we have. So here at City Church, we try to be understanding and sensitive and walk along and, with, and support those of you who may struggle with doubt from time to time. And the interesting thing is doubt can come at all sorts of different places along our spiritual journey. It can come well before anyone decides to be a follower of Christ, just trying to figure it all out. There are a lot of questions and doubts that may be there. But it can also happen after, and that's what was happening to the people that John was writing. They had once believed, maybe even easily, but now it was much more difficult. And so they had time when those questions really became more important. So if you're struggling right now with doubt, whether it's as part of a search for God or after a long time of being what you consider a Christian, um, understand that it's okay. In fact, it's important to wrestle with those questions. Sometimes what happens is we move from having a superficial faith to a much more mature faith. Superficial faith really won't stand up over time. So we want to support you as you wrestle along the way with questions and objections and doubts that you may have about faith. But I also want to challenge you not to give up because after talking with lots of people over the years, I have found that there are, there's a common theme. That even though you don't have all the answers to the questions you might like to have, you can't also quite walk away. You know too much of God to deny that... Um, You know, I I can't really abandon all of this. 
And that's why what John does at the very beginning of this letter, all the way back in chapter 1, is so important because what he points us to is some foundational truths about our faith. Now, he begins this a little bit philosophically, so we'll try to unpack it, but let me just read to you the first couple of words from chapter 1, our first couple of verses from chapter 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now, he uses some language that's a little dense, but let's try to look at it a little more carefully and see how first he begins by saying, that which was from the beginning. And then in verse 2, he clarifies by saying, He was with the Father and appeared to us. So this is kind of a more complex way of saying Jesus was once with the Father, and he means eternally with the Father, and now he has come to become one of us. Essentially, he means that Jesus existed for all of time. He's been around from the beginning and beyond, and now the eternal Son of God has come to live among us. This is really the Christmas story in a couple of verses. God has always been involved in human history. If you just read the stories of the Old Testament, you'll find examples of how God directed and how God worked through human persons to accomplish things. But when Jesus arrived on the scene, that involvement got more personal because the very word of God, that's John's name here for Jesus, became a human being and has taken up residence in this world. How does John know all of this? He says, I know it from firsthand experience. He says, I heard him, I saw him, I touched him. He's claiming to be an eyewitness to Jesus. And that's why he spoke with such confidence. That's why he was so eager to tell other people what he knew. So John's point here is that Christian faith is is, uh, grounded in history. It's intellectually coherent. It's not just wishful, wishful thinking or blind faith. But even saying that, I know that it is still hard sometimes to believe. Doubt can come and go, even in the life of a devout believer. For some, doubt is an everyday reality. You just read the biographies of even some famous Christians, you'll find that they struggled with doubt. People like Martin Luther and C.S. Lewis and Mother Teresa all struggled with doubt. A writer I once read compared her faith journey to a walk across the lake jumping from one lily pad to another. That kind of uncertainty can exist in our lives. And John is sympathetic to the doubter. It happens. It's not in itself wrong. That's why he points to his own unique experience about why it is that he believes And I hope, too, that you listen and maybe can find a greater understanding and challenge yourself not to remain where you are forever, but to look to evidence like the evidence that John provides here. But what he also says here is that his faith is, first of all, grounded in fact, but it doesn't just stay there. In other words, the Christian story is not just a set of ideas. It's something else that we're drawn to. God's created us with a natural desire to know our Creator. That's why Christian faith is also a relationship with the living God. And so in verse 3, he says it this way. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, that's the fact part, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he's telling us faith does make sense. His own experience of that gave him that confidence. But even more, it's a relationship, a friendship with Jesus. And that's how John starts this book. Now, in between, what we've talked about over the last four weeks is John defines authentic faith. This is a faith, as Kara told us last week, that's grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ, or Messiah, the Son of God. 
It's also a faith that's lived out. Love for God is proved when we obey him, when we live the life that Jesus did or demonstrated for us. And it's a faith that shows itself when we love others, when we love one another. He talks about brothers and sisters. In other words, we actually live out our faith by loving people in a selfless way. Now we come this week, at the end of this series, to the end of the book, when John comes back and makes a full circle and summarizes what he wants them to know, what his purpose is in writing, and then he gives a practical example. So let's take the summary of Christian faith that John provides here at the end. And it's in chapter 5, verse 13, that he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I want to read that again. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Again, he's writing to people who have faith, although what he could also include is he says, here's the reason why I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And then he says, I write this to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's acknowledging their doubts. He's not saying that they're wrong or bad. He's just saying, I want to give you some confidence. Make you understand that Jesus is still the Son of God, the one in whom you can find eternal life. So he's saying that I've heard, I've touched, I've seen, and I am certain that Jesus is the one in whom we find eternal life. So he writes to give them reassurance. Let me just say something about the phrase eternal life because that can be both confusing and sometimes even unattractive. One problem with the idea of eternal life is that some people think that just means living life forever, um, simply lasting forever. And that may not be very appealing to you, either because right now you're going through a really tough time and you think, I don't want to live through this forever, or you may have some kind of difficulty that may never leave you, at least as long as you live here on earth. So the idea of forever living sounds a little bit like a burden. The idea of living forever in your current reality might sound more like the horror movie version of Groundhog Day. For others of you, though, heaven sounds incredibly boring. And I get it. If heaven is harps and clouds and angels with wings, a lot of us would opt out, although that is not an accurate view of heaven. Heaven is the fulfillment of everything we've ever hoped for. It's peace and joy and freedom that we don't have here. It's the defeat of sin and frustration. It's the place where everything works the way that God intended for it to work. It's the life that we have longed to live ever since we can remember. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean, though, that Christians live just pie-in-the-sky lives, ignoring our present circumstances and only living for the future. Jesus, in his prayer that he gave his disciples, told us to pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, he's saying, let's bring little bits of heaven down to earth by what we do, to work for peace and righteousness right here and now. So we look forward to an eternity with God, but in the meantime, we have a job to do, peace and righteousness and justice, and see those things, those values lived out here. Now, an important result of our assurance of eternal life has to do with the second thing I want to talk about today, and that is the way that John tells us that we can approach God in prayer. Let me just say that, um, just thinking about this, um, maybe some of you have had the experience of having to approach an important person, someone who's maybe rich or powerful or in some other way important, and to ask them for a favor. Uh, I've had to ask people at times, people that are fairly important people, to speak in a group that I uh, have pulled together and There's a suggestion of a speaker, someone I don't know, and to approach someone that maybe is more powerful or at least perceived to be more powerful than I am. 
Or maybe it's something, uh, you, you're looking for a job, you want to make a change, a career change, and somebody says, well, I know an executive vice president in XYZ company, why don't you contact them? And you think as you start to send the email or make the phone call, my goodness, that's somebody who's really powerful. Or a friend of a friend says, well, I, I know somebody who uh, has a condo in Vail, and they don't use it in the summer, and you know, maybe you can go use it for a week, and you're thinking, this person, they don't know me, how's this going to work out? And so it's difficult to work out the courage to ask in those kinds of situations. And some of you feel that way when you pray. You think, the God of the universe, really? I'm going to talk to him? And why should he listen to my piddly literal request? Or even maybe something more significant? Because he is, after all, God. So how should we approach God when we pray? Well, here's the way John suggests in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 5. He says, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. So the first thing we need to see here is that we are to have confidence in approaching God. We shouldn't be afraid. We should be bold. We should tell him what we want and what we need. We literally have freedom of speech when we come to God, to talk directly with him. So when we do that, we know that he listens to our prayers, he hears them, and he hears us favorably. That means that God is more than ready to listen whenever we come to him, whenever we pray. We're not forcing ourselves on him or compelling him to pay attention. He is waiting to listen to us and to hear us. So whatever you take away from this, know that you can pray to God about anything at all. Now, it's true that there is a condition here, and that is we need to pray according to God's will. In other words, he's not promising to give us everything that we pray for. For one, some of the things that we might pray for are things that wouldn't be good for us. But we always... We don't always know why we don't get what we pray for, but we do need to pray acknowledging that we are not as wise as God is. And even Jesus prayed this way. I don't know if you remember, but shortly before Jesus was arrested and then he was tried and then executed on a Roman cross, he asked God for a way out so that he wouldn't have to go through the next 24 hours or so that he was going to experience. And then he added, though, he said, but not my will, but yours be done. So even Jesus prayed that prayer. And we need to do the same, to surrender our will to Jesus, to let him know that even though we may want something, we're willing to let him say no if it's not something that fits with his will. The caution here is that we shouldn't view prayer like you might in a story about a genie where you rub the lamp and you get three wishes, or rub a lamp and the genie pops out. Let's get that right. Um, Or to pray as though God's a vending machine where you just punch a button and get the candy bar that you want. Prayer is not something we use as a way of manipulating God into getting whatever it is that we want. It means that we are invited to pray, asking God for what we want, and then ending our prayers asking him for what he wants. Every prayer must end with your will be done. Now you can already see the problem here, and that is, If we start with what we want and know we need to end our prayers asking God for what he wants, isn't this going to tie us all into knots where you're second-guessing your prayers? I don't know about you, but many of my prayers, really, if I analyze them uh, carefully, are fairly selfish. 
If we start overthinking whatever our prayers might be, we can begin to second guess even the simplest of prayers. And in the end, you may not even pray at all. Now, I do think that the older I get, the more that I know of God, the more that my desires probably line up with his. I don't pray at least very often that God will give influenza to my enemies or ask for a million dollars from a long lost and previously unknown relative. Um, I'm better, I hope, at knowing the things that please God and praying for them. But I still struggle praying, knowing that what I'm asking for might be viewed by God as selfish or childish. And knowing that used to make me very timid when I prayed. In the last few years, I've concluded that if I'm going to err on one side or the other, I'm going to err on the side of being bold in my prayers and then trust God to veto whatever it is he knows isn't good for me. Now, he may not give me the answer that I'm asking for, but sometimes I can actually, as the old Garth Brooks song says, thank God for unanswered prayer. You see, God invites us to bring our requests to him. What happens in this world does depend on our prayers. We know God's purposes will prevail in the end, but we also know that through prayer we make ourselves an instrument of his will. In a manner way beyond our comprehension, God's able to act powerfully to answer our prayers. The more we pray, the more we know of him and his character. The more we know what it is that he wants, and the more we'll have the joy of receiving the answers to our prayers. But in the meantime, if you're doubting, go ahead and pray. Ask. Recently, I was reading something, and the author suggested that uh, we're all thinking, you know, we really ought to pray for things that are high and mighty, like uh, prayers of thanksgiving and praise or for world peace. Um, then he said, what we really ought to pray for is what we want and need, remembering that we are praying to a loving Father who knows us better than we do ourselves and wants to give us his best. In fact, he reminds us that Jesus gave a prayer full of a list of requests, including our daily bread. So he said, when you pray, pray for what you want and need, and don't worry too much about whether what you're praying is selfish or immature. So let me give you a few examples. So if you're in middle school and uh, you haven't studied really hard for an exam, go ahead and pray to pass the exam. Now, next time, study harder, but you can start by just praying. Or if you're in high school and you see a boy or a girl you're interested in, it's okay to pray that you might meet this person. Um, or let's take an adult example. You think, oh, maybe I need a new house. And so you start looking and you start praying about it. And maybe along the way, God will convince you that uh, you ought to be content where you are. But you will only know if you pray in the first place. He went on to say that you may be thinking that you're supposed to be praying for all these high and mighty things. And maybe you're ought. But uh, he said, someday God may lead you to do that. But if you're not passionate about it, just go ahead and pray for the things that are on your mind. Pray, come to God as honestly as you can. There's no need to pretend before him. Now, I can tell you from experience, it's not uncommon to pray and find that God uses the time that I'm praying to him to show me something about my heart. I don't want that to scare you away because I believe that God is totally loving and accepting and even his no's often come, we later see, because he has our best interests in mind. So in prayer, God can move us from where we are to where we ought to be. That's what makes prayer a bit of a risk. If you pray and acknowledge that your prayer might be selfish, there is the distinct possibility that God will grow you up a bit. But you will only know that if you are actively in conversation with him. Now, it may seem a bit scary. In fact, a bit of a risk to pray because you're thinking, well, if I start praying about something I want, maybe God will convince me I don't want it and I don't really want to do that. And You can get yourself tied up in knots about this. God may reveal tactfully and gently to you that you have a deeper and more mature desire but there's only one way to find out, and that is to pray. 
And you may also find he gives you what you ask. Now, as we have for the last few months, I want to talk here at the end about how we can live out what we've talked about today, how we can put it all into practice. And we started by talking about doubt. In this case, the people John was writing to had doubts about what they once believed, whether it was still true. And you may be on the front end of a spiritual journey exploring what it means to be a follower of Christ, or you may be further along and suddenly doubts have entered your mind. So whether you are a Christian or not, um, whether you have questions or not, whether you're in a season of doubting or not, listen to what John says when he says at the beginning of this book, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. So these are the facts that John wants to point them to. And then near the end, in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. It might just be that you um, already know, um, that with what you already know, that you may have heard from what John says today, that you can have confidence And you are able to make a decision to follow Jesus today. It may be that what John says here is kind of a switch is flipped, the pennies dropped, whatever it is, and you understand what it is to be a follower of Christ. So I hope you'll make that decision today. Or if you're in a season of doubt, maybe what you've heard today will give you more confidence. Maybe it will help you to trust Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection that John pointed to, and that you can have the hope of eternal life. It's not just a life that goes on forever, but a life of peace and freedom and joy. And then secondly, if you're trying to figure out what to think about when you pray, listen to what John says. When he told them to confidently pray, to boldly pray, knowing that if we ask anything according to his name, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. I was thinking about this just the other day, and I realized that if if prayer is what you're struggling with, whether you're a Christian or not, by the way, I think God listens to anyone who sincerely talks to him. Let me encourage you to try a little experiment, and that is maybe for the next 30 days, write out a list of the things that you want or need, the things that are are, are of concern to you. Write at this list and pray for it every day for 30 days. And if that's too intimidating, try seven or 10 days, but just make a consistent effort to pray about the things that are on your mind. And pray knowing that God is one who hears you and wants to give you what you have asked of him. So what we have today is confidence. That's what John wants us to have. Confidence to believe and confidence to pray boldly. These are what John tells us are a vital part of authentic Christian faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this short letter. Um, This little letter that... uh, describes to a people who were struggling with faith why it is that they could have confidence. Confidence that Jesus was who biblical writers tell us he was, the Son of God, come to live among us, to show us what it is to live the life that you have for us, and then to make the sacrifice for us, to die on a Roman cross, be raised from the dead, saving us from sin and death and giving us life, eternal life, Not just a long-lasting life, but a life full of joy and purpose and meaning and hope. And Father, along the way, as we make our way through this life, help us to remember that um, you've given us things to do. And one of the things that you, you invite us to do is to bring whatever it is that's on our minds to you in prayer. I pray, Father, that we would pray confidently and boldly, knowing that you listen, 
submitting to your will in whatever it is that we ask, but also knowing that you want us to ask. So we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.